Can I add to the welcome that Colin gave you at the beginning of the service? Especially if you're a visitor here this evening, we're delighted to see you. It's a beautiful evening. It's great to come together to sing God's praise. We're going to focus on God's word. We believe that as we seek the help of the Holy Spirit, so God will speak to us through his word, written almost 2,000 years ago, can speak to us today and draw us to that most important place, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where he died and later rose from the grave. Let's just pray and ask God to help us and help me. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for all that we've heard this evening. You've already spoken to us in song, in prayer, in testimony. We thank you for what we learnt this morning of how you've spoken most powerfully through your word and through your Son, who is indeed the living Word, the Word who became flesh. So we pray now that you'll speak to us again about Him, what it means to follow Him, and give each one of us, preacher and hearer alike, the help of the Holy Spirit, not only to hear, but also to understand, and not only to understand, but also to respond in repentance and faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I remember very clearly switching on our radio and someone who shall be nameless had changed channels. Uh, it was tuned to Radio 1, which I don't normally listen to. Uh, but as I listened very briefly, and was about to turn to Terry Wogan or something like that, um, I was, my attention was caught because they were discussing a, a quiz that they'd been, uh, or a competition uh, that had been taking place on Radio 1 for some time, and they were announcing the winners. I'm a very competitive person, so I just stopped to listen. And, and they, the, the competition was, listeners were invited to send in my most embarrassing moment. My most embarrassing moment. Now, I, I can't recall any of the other stories, and you're probably glad for that, except one. It was chosen as the winner out of all the thousands that had been entered. And you'll realise why I remembered it and it's stuck in my mind. And I actually mentioned this once before for those who keep records about five years ago, but it's worth repeating. Okay, here's the winner. A young guy had entered this and this was number one. My most embarrassing moment was when my father took us for a meal in McDonald's and said grace out loud... Before we ate. Now, why was it a winner? Well, because to say grace in public and out loud in our society is not normal practice today. Although it once was, and it still is in other parts of the world. When you, or someone with you, does something like that, and other people witness it, you may well be embarrassed. Or even further, ashamed. You may even be disgraced. If this issue seriously contravenes accepted belief and practice. That is why, for example... To become a Christian in a Muslim society, and I've lived in one for years, may just about be permissible 
if you keep it very quiet. But to be baptized as a Christian in a Muslim society, to make a public confession of your faith in Jesus, will not only be embarrassing for your family, it will bring shame and disgrace to them. And often serious consequences for you. Now, there is nothing new about this for Christians. For the first three centuries of its existence, the Christian faith and its claims, worshipping a crucified Messiah, were regarded as scandalous by the religious and as ridiculous by the sophisticated. And so Christians became a target for persecution and a useful scapegoat for the authorities if they wanted someone to blame and knew they could get away with it. The best or worst example of this was when the Roman Emperor Nero accused the Christians of causing the great fire of Rome which decimated engulfed large parts of the city in July AD 64. Not of course then that they called it 64 but that's what it was. A.D. Uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, describes how an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. All were nailed to crosses. All were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illuminations when daylight had expired. Now, two or three years after that, after the fire of Rome, when the flames of the fire, but not of the persecution against Christians, for Nero was still emperor, had died down, a leading Christian was arrested and imprisoned in Rome, almost certainly, in the famous Mamertine prison. You can actually still visit it. Managed to find a picture on the internet for those who'd like to look. And it's probably been cleaned up a bit since then, I'm sure, in the last 2,000 years. The prison's name was Paul. And he, above all others, had been responsible for the phenomenal spread of the Christian faith throughout the Mediterranean world and the Roman Empire of his day and beyond. Now here he is in this cell, shackled to guards. He is awaiting trial and almost certain execution. And from prison, he writes a last letter to a young colleague whose name was Timothy, whom he describes as his son in the faith. For it was through Paul's preaching when he came to Timothy's hometown that young Timothy became a believer in Jesus and put his faith in him. And, and here is elderly Paul, battered by 25 years on the road for Jesus. Here he is at what would seem to be an ignominious end to his career. And he's writing to this young colleague, younger colleague Timothy. Now, what does he advise him to do? In the present climate, where to be a Christian is a very risky business, and to identify with Christians is also a very risky business, does he advise him to keep his head down? To keep a low profile? Or even like Radovan Karadzic in the news this week, grow a beard and disguise his identity? 
No, he writes his last letter to him, and the thrust of his letter is, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. So let's read, it's an amazing thing this, this letter that he wrote has been preserved. It's in this book, the Bible, in the New Testament part. And we're going to read the opening section of it, the first chapter. Of course, he didn't write in chapters, he wasn't writing a novel, but the chapters and verses came later. But let's read the first chapter now. It will help to have the Bible in front of you to make sure what I'm saying fits in with what the Bible says. So, uh, there are Bibles in the pews, just get one up, ask someone to pass one to you. It's on page 1195. We're going to read the first chapter and then just briefly look at it together. And I want you to imagine, when you get home, you can read the other three chapters. How he actually finishes off the last letter. It's a very moving letter. Just imagine him there, scratching away in the darkened cell, writing this letter to his younger colleague. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also." For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus." Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me, until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he has helped me in Ephesus. Well, let's stop there. As I say, when you get home, you can read the other three chapters and 
how he finished. Let me just simply, before we come to the baptisms in a moment or two, uh, let me highlight three related things, issues about which Paul tells Timothy he should not be ashamed, things which we should not be ashamed of if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. First of all, he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed to testify. The literal translation of the opening sentence in verse 8 is, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Uh, The word testimony is often translated witness. It's a Greek word, and the Greek word is martyrion, from which we get the word martyr. Because a martyr is first and foremost a witness. But so many Christians witnessed to death that the word became martyr became connected directly with a person who died for his or her faith. Now, what the Christians witnessed about, what Paul witnessed about, what he tells Timothy not to be ashamed of, but to witness about, is what God has done, which he calls the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. It's a message of good news. So, the focus of the Christian's testimony of the gospel is good news about what God has done. You see that in verses 8 to 10. For us, through Jesus. Look at both of those more closely. First of all, the gospel is a message about what God has done for us personally. For us. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, the essential qualification, if you want to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the gospel, is that you have personally experienced its power. Those who shared their testimonies this evening shared in different ways how they'd invited the Lord Jesus Christ into their lives, sometimes dramatically, sometimes it happens gradually, but a change has taken place. They've experienced the power of the gospel. And when you're a Christian, you know two very important things. First of all, that God has saved you. You see that? From the consequences of your wrongdoing, from the power and penalty of your own sinful way of life, when you live for yourself, And you know now that because God has saved you, he has also called you to live a different life. He calls it a holy life. Holy simply means set apart to serve God. To live differently with his help. And he says none of this was because of what we had done. No, this was God's plan and God's grace. And that's the only qualification for being baptized. I often find people say, I say to them, are you a Christian? They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. So I say, when did you become a Christian? Oh, it's a wonderful day. Yeah, yeah, I remember it was uh, seven years ago, ten years ago. People sometimes say twenty years ago. I say, oh, wonderful. When did you get baptized? Ooh, I don't think I'm ready for it yet. You'll never be ready. It's not about what you've done. It's about what God has done for you. That's why Christians constantly in the record of the Bible were baptized almost immediately after they came to faith in Jesus. As soon as they knew and put their trust in Christ, they declared it publicly by being baptized. So Paul says the focus of the Christian's testimony, let's just review this, is good news about what God has done for us, and he goes on to describe how God has done it, through Jesus. This grace, grace means God's unmerited favor that we don't deserve, his love, 
mercy, was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This was God's long-term plan, way before time even started. But it's now been revealed to us in time and history through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Now we could spend a long time unpacking all those phrases, but let me simply say, God's good news plan was revealed or made known, put into action in time and history through Christ Jesus. Christ the Messiah, Jesus the Saviour, the two parts of his character, who destroyed death by his death, and brought new life through his resurrection. And Colin explained, that's what baptism symbolizes. You'll see these people go down into the water, buried, as it were, symbolically with Christ in baptism. We'll bring them up fairly quickly, and they'll rise up, symbolically, to a new life in the power of God, identifying with Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. And that's why the gospel, the good news is not something to be ashamed of. As Paul writes in another of his letters to the Christians in Rome, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And Paul's whole life since he encountered Jesus, or rather Christ encountered him on the road to Damascus when he was out persecuting Christians on a mission trip, wrong kind of mission trip, Ever since then, at that point, God appointed him as a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. A herald is someone who proclaims loudly news for everyone. It's, it's a bit like the old town crier. You remember, they've reintroduced them in sometimes. You know, the person who goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, and rings a bell, and walks down the street. and They don't sort of mumble into their beards and go, mm-hmm. no, they shout out loud, good news for everyone. Paul has important news to share. It's not his own message, it's one that's been given to him to share with everyone. So, he says to Timothy, look, in the present climate, politically speaking, you'd be better keeping your head down at this point, because if you go down the street shouting about Jesus, you're going to get into trouble. But Paul says, Timothy, that's not an option for you as a Christian. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If the message you carry is of supreme importance, it overrides all other considerations. And now, what Paul said to Timothy is of great importance to us today. You are unlikely, so far, to be arrested for preaching about Jesus, though people recently have been, if they've done it in the wrong areas. A man was recently arrested by the police for preaching in an area, I think it was in Bradford, which the police told him is a Muslim area, you're not supposed to do this. Uh, Took him to court, and he was cleared, of course. Thankfully, we still have that freedom. How long we'll have it, I don't know. Many parts of the world, still today, if you declare your faith in Jesus, your life is under threat. Yet in those places, the gospel is spreading remarkably. Like a grain of mustard seed, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is extending through suffering. It's the way of Christ. And we should pray. If you're a Christian, you should know about those places. You should be praying about them. You should have information about them. And if you buried your head in the sand and don't realize what's really happening in the real world. Now, the worst that most of us face at the moment, and it's getting worse, I think, without being exaggerating, is ridicule and ostracism by our friends and colleagues. But many Christians still today find 
that the course of least resistance is the one they adopt. Let's keep a low profile, keep quiet for fear or shame. So, as I come to the end of this first point, let me just pause for a moment and say, have you received the good news about Jesus? Can you say God has saved me? Can you say God has called me? And have you witnessed to that? Baptism's where you start publicly witnessing. That's why it's not, it's not, a, it's not a private affair. I've said on many occasions, we don't normally baptize people by request in their homes in the bath. No, you baptize publicly so everyone can see and everyone is welcome to see. But that's just the beginning. Paul tells Timothy and us, don't be ashamed to testify about the gospel. Don't be embarrassed. Don't fear ridicule in regard to its contents. Don't be frightened for fear of the consequences. I wonder if you've nailed your colors to the mast. It's a good way to test this. Uh, And you know the answer to this. If you claim to be a Christian, does everyone you know know that? If you're working in an office, if I... I'm not going to do this, by the way, don't worry, but if I turned up at your office and said, oh, that's so-and-so, it's a member of my church, you you know they're a Christian, of course, don't you? And they go, what? Never. Really? Point to your college class? Family? Have you declared your allegiance to Jesus Christ? Or are you ashamed to testify? So, let's move on quickly. Secondly, linked with that, he says, don't be ashamed, not only to testify, don't be ashamed to identify with the Lord's people. Look again at verse 8. He says to Timothy, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. You see, identifying with Jesus always, always means identifying with his people. For Timothy and the other Christians in Rome, it meant identifying with a man who was on trial for his life for a crime against the state, the imperial state and power of Rome. Paul, of course, doesn't describe himself as a prisoner of Rome, but as a prisoner of Christ. He says, I'm his prisoner. He says, I'm not in prison for doing something wrong, but for the name of my master, my ultimate authority is not Rome, but Christ. Now, when Paul, we're not sure where Paul was arrested. Most people believe he's out on one of his journeys and someone reported him or whatever. He may have been in Rome, but let's suppose for a moment he's out on his travels. Here's Paul brought in chains to Rome and thrown into prison. Now, it would be pretty common knowledge that such a key figure had been captured. You saw and mentioned Radovan Karadzic being captured this week. Thank goodness for that. Uh, but you imagine Paul, the great apostle of Christ, has been arrested. He's been brought to Rome. He's been put in prison. Now, in Rome, there are Christians. There's a Christian community there. Paul wrote to them. What are they going to do when Paul turns up? Are they going to be queuing up to take lasagnas into him? Uh, Give him a bit of encouragement? You see, in this situation, they have two options. They shouldn't have been ashamed of his chains, but proud of them, proud of him. Sadly, Paul says this wasn't the case. Most people took the option of cowardly desertion. What he says in verse 15, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Kind of sad, isn't it? All that we know about these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, were that they were professing Christians who deserted Paul and ran away when he was in prison. They deserted him. 
But there was one exception who chose the other option of costly identification. A man named Anesiphorus, who diligently searched hard for Paul until he found him. No easy matter among the deep dungeons in that prison. And when he found him, he brought him help. So he says, Paul, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, because he often refreshed me, was not ashamed, there's the word again, he was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Now, the refreshment that he brought was almost certainly supplies, food and drink, whether they ate lasagna, well, I suppose, yes, getting out that way in Rome, isn't it? Uh, Prisoners were responsible, family had to bring their provisions for them. But surely it was refreshment of spirit and Christian encouragement and company that Paul appreciated most of all. And he says, such identification has ultimate consequences. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how in many ways he helped me in Ephesus. He says, there's a day coming when those kind of deeds will be recognized. Remember, Jesus taught a parable about if you know the gospel stories. He said on the last day, everyone will come before God. And he'll say to some people, thank you so much. Welcome to the kingdom of my father. And among other things, he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And they'll say to him, Lord, I don't remember that. When was that? And he said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. And to other people, he'll say, depart from me. Because I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they'll say, well, no, we don't remember that. And he said, inasmuch as you didn't do it to my brethren. You didn't do it to me. There are eternal consequences at stake here. Just as we should know about fellow Christians who are suffering, so we should care for them in practical ways. The book of Hebrews reminds us, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Hebrews 13, 3. Now, it's easy to make protestations. Oh, I'd never, I'd, I'd never abandon my fellow Christians. I'll stand up and stand with them when they're in trouble. Before you jump to make such protestations, remember the story of Peter, who on the night of our Lord's betrayal, said to Jesus, if everyone else forsakes you, I never will. And a few hours later, denied his Lord with curses before a wee servant girl. And in our own country, again, there's little fear other than ridicule in belonging to a church. Yet it's surprising increasingly I find, how many people belong to Christ but do not, at least visibly and actively, belong to his people. Do not identify with a local church, warts and all. Now, there may be all sorts of reasons for this. You know, the old authorised version uh, translates 1 Peter 2 now and says God's people are a peculiar people. Uh, It doesn't mean what it means, but you may sometimes think it does, uh, that we are strange. But those who especially, the word peculiar there, means those who especially belong to God. And God chooses all sorts of people. You don't choose your physical relatives, and you don't choose your Christian relatives either. If God loves them, then so should we. And the church should be the one place where people who no one else cares for and accepts, welcomes and cares for. Some time ago, I was given a little poem that I jotted down. If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'll spoil the atmosphere. 
But since no perfect church exists where people never sin, don't go searching for that church, enjoy the one you're in. Well, are you ashamed to identify with the Lord's people? Paul urges Timothy and us not to be ashamed to testify about the Lord, to identify with his people. Thirdly and finally, he says, related to all this, don't be ashamed to suffer for Christ. I mean, if someone asks you what words you would use if someone asked you to summarise what being a Christian means. Joy, peace, purpose, love. I guess all of those would be accurate descriptions. But not a full description. I think if you ask Paul what it means to be a Christian, he would include, probably high up the list, the word suffering. As the normal Christian life. The reason why Paul is in prison is because he's a Christian who fearlessly proclaims the good news of Jesus. He associates with his people. So he concludes in verse 12 that he's suffering for the gospel of Christ. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Now you might say, well that's particularly true of Paul because it went with the job, you know. He was an official uh, herald, apostle, teacher. But Jesus told all who followed him to expect suffering for his name, for the name of Christ. Listen to some of the final words Jesus spoke to his disciples before his suffering and death. That's what he said. To them and to you if you're a follower. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is the why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. John 15 20 to 21. We've seen in the book of Acts how the early Christians experienced this in reality. Yet after being flogged and told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, we read this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin where they'd been on trial, rejoicing they'd been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So suffering for the sake of Christ is what the Christians should expect. You'll read later in this letter that he wrote to Timothy. Um, he says, You, all, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And then he summarizes and he said, In fact, all who live Godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Now, there's an important cause and effect here, isn't there? The Christian is urged to boldly proclaim the name of Christ, which will inevitably lead to growth among those who receive it, and persecution and those who reject it. At this point, you have two options. The first is to stop witnessing, at which point the growth will stop and the suffering will stop. The second is to go on speaking, at which point the church will continue to grow and the suffering will increase. Sometimes I wonder 
if the reason why we don't suffer as much as in other parts of the world is because we don't witness as boldly as other people do in other parts of the world. There is a stigma, there is a pain to being ostracised or worse for the name of Christ. You may be the only Christian in your family, the only Christian in your class, the only Christian in your office. But it's here that the rubber hits the road. The reality of our confession is truly seen. Are we ashamed to suffer for Christ? Or do we rejoice that we are counted worthy of suffering for Christ? Now, here's the promise. When we suffer, we receive God's power. Promised power. Verse 8. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. When you suffer for the gospel, when you proclaim the gospel, you receive the help and power of the Holy Spirit. That's our theme this year as a church, isn't it? You're a regular worshipper here, remember? Our verse for the year reminds us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, beginning where you are, to the ends of the earth. Well, I've almost finished, you'll be glad to know, but let me say a couple of things in conclusion. An encouragement and a warning. As we think of our theme, don't be ashamed. First of all, here's the encouragement. Book of Hebrews tells us in a very wonderful way, it's probably the only place I know in the New Testament, where this particular point is made by the writer, that Jesus is not ashamed of us. Hebrews 2, 10, 11 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's what Jesus did, he suffered. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Isn't that a wonderful thought? If you're a Christian, you're part of God's family, and Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, to identify you as part of his family. It doesn't mean men, just it means men and women. Brothers and sisters. That should be a great incentive when we're tempted to be ashamed of him. But the Lord Jesus finally also issued a stern warning. When would-be followers came to follow him, he warned them of the cost. Here are the words of Jesus recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the Gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, here are the words of Jesus. If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. There is a cost to following Christ, but there is a great cost to not following Christ. Only in following Christ, in suffering for Christ, can we have that final assurance that Paul gives to Timothy. Verse 12 again, That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Shortly after Paul wrote this, we're not sure how long, history tells us he was brought to summary trial, he was convicted, found guilty, taken as a Roman citizen, the privilege of a Roman citizen was not to be crucified, but to be taken out on the Appian Way outside Rome, as the Ostian Way maybe, and his head was lopped off with a sword. He was executed for Christ. But Paul knows that's not the end of the story. That's not the final tribunal. The final 
tribunal will acquit him before God because of Jesus Christ and all that he did for him. That's why he tells Timothy and his words echo down the centuries to us. Don't be ashamed. Stand up, be counted. Declare your allegiance to Christ, to his people. Be prepared to suffer and rejoice in that privilege. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that the Apostle wrote that have been preserved for us in your goodness, providence. We reflected on them this evening. We pray you'll impress upon them the message that you want us to hear. For those here who don't as yet follow Jesus, we pray you'll call them, save them. For those of us who do, forgive us for our cowardice sometimes and willingness to stand up and be counted. Help us to confess Christ. To give a reason to those who ask, the reason for the hope within us. And give us opportunities even this week to declare our allegiance for Christ. And bless those now who are going to declare that they are not ashamed by following Christ and his command in baptism. We ask it in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.